This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Ladder of Love, recorded March 23, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, this morning we're going to answer another question from the question box, and this one was dropped in by Abdullah, and it says, What is love? I know we have Hollywood love and general hospital love. Is love a verb or what? So, the question is, what is love with a few little specifics tagged on? People who are bilingual in English and Spanish tell me, because I'm not bilingual in Spanish, in Spanish there are a hundred words for every meaning, and in English there are a hundred meanings for every word. In other words, Spanish is a much more precise language. If you want to express something, there's a very precise word for it. English, our words have many, many meanings and nuances and so forth. And love is certainly one of these English words that has multiple, multiple meanings. So that makes it a little mysterious. We don't quite know what we talk about when we just say love with no context. Now, one way to help clarify meanings in this situation is to use more words, to try to break it up and to use more words. In fact, I gave a talk once called What is Love, I think, and I went back to the Greek. The uh, Greeks did not have one word, love, the way we have in English. They had three primary words. One was eros, which is romantic love, more like lust, desire, that sort of thing. Uh, then there's philia, which is brotherly love, human kindness. Philadelphia is the city of love. Delphi is city and philo is love. So, And then there was agape, or agape, which was spiritual love, love for the truth, love for the divine, love for the ultimate. So they had three different words. And just out of curiosity, in Arabic, are there more than other... There's one, actually. There's a... So what? Hub. Hub. Yeah. Like in Arabic, there are certain uh, like uh, letters that learned in English, like ha and ha. Uh-huh. So it's hub. 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 Yes. So it's closer to English in that sense, then having just yeah. one base word right. that covers a lot of meanings. Yes. Well, that's interesting. Good, uh, because I was thinking when I was thinking about Abdullah's question that maybe rather than break this up into several words. Uh, Maybe if we examine all the meanings, or at least a a lot of the meanings of love, the word love in English, that will reveal to us a connection between all these things, which might tell us something about ourselves and the cosmos that we live in. So, I thought we'd try a little experiment this morning, and this is based on the fact that although love, uh, the word in English, has a little bit of a mystery to it. Love is not something that just mystics know about. Everybody has some experience of love at some level. So what I thought we'd do is use a Socratic dialogue method to try to shed light on what love means in each of our own experience. Socrates developed this method. It's a kind of a questioning method, but it's a pretty free-form discussion. Socrates would sort of lead the discussion and ask leading questions. 
and he, the reason he developed this is because he believed that fundamental knowledge is innate in all of us. So learning for Socrates is really a way of just uh, getting you to remember the, his ideas we've forgotten. So this dialogue is about bringing out the knowledge that you actually already possess. So let's begin by asking what sorts of things do you love or have you loved? And it is very important in this that you be honest, not just give politically correct answers, if we're going to really get to the bottom of this, to the truth of this, right? So let's just start by throwing out things that you have loved or do love now, and that may tell us something about what this love is. And I'd like you to start, Abdullah. You name something that you love or have loved in the past. Uh, family, my family. Family, okay. Let's put that right over somewhere right there. Nature. Nature. Put that above family there. Look at that beautiful handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't spell it. Half Sundays. Excuse me? Hot fudge Sunday. Hot, put that down here. <laughs> not hot, not, not hot. Yes. Physical pleasure. Physical pleasure. Mm, put that up here. Want more? Artistic creativity. Artistic creativity. Put that here. Just put art. That's good enough. Cats. Cats. Uh, put cats. What? Cats. Pets. Put that next to family, that's close enough. Yes. Knowledge. Knowledge. Oh, put that up here higher. Good knowledge. Okay. Yes. Myself. Yourself. Oh boy, where will we put that? Let's put that at the bottom. <laughs> I heard music. Music. Okay, all right. Put it on the same line as, as uh, all right. Anybody else? The sun. The sun. The sun? Because that comes with nature, sorry. Well, do you like the sun specifically? No, if you like the sun specifically, let's put it no, on the I same. I like the heat and the mm -hmm. warmth. And the... <laughs> That's maybe physical pleasure, huh? Yeah. Somewhere in there. Sun, okay. Sunshine, okay. So does the love of a wife, is that the same as love of family and pets? <laughs> well, <laughs> now your your mind is already making a judgment here about why these are going together. <laughs> but do you love your wife? Yes. We could put that yes, on there. Okay, let's put that next. Mate. To, yeah. Mate. What? Teachers. Teachers. Spiritual teachers. Yes. Spiritual teachers. Let's put that. Um, with wife, family, and pets. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's ask: Is it the the Knowledge? teacher, or the teaching? Are they come together, or could you separate? Is there one specific teacher? No, I have several. Let's put that with family, pets, and stuff. Hmm. Nobody's mentioned here, and I want to get this on the list, so I, I'll throw it out. I can. Uh, a romantic lover. So let's just call lover. Teacher, wife, family, and pets. Now this is different because this is when you first fall in love and that's a different emotion, I think, usually. At least it was for me. I love food. Food, okay. Let's put food, hot fudge, Sundays, food. Just put food. That's good. 
The friend is good. Friends. Friends. Yeah. Friends. Friends. Friends would go with family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can put up there. People and animals in general. Books. Book. Knowledge. Knowledge. Okay. Is uh, well, you could love books. Like Jennifer loves fine books, the actual physical book, or are you thinking more of the, what's contained in the book? So let's just put literature, art, music, lit. Put, put that, that would be good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. And that includes poetry. Yeah, that includes poetry. Creating something. Art, music, lit, I think, covers. So does, oh, let, but let's put no. Okay, let, let's put it. it next to knowledge. Creativity, just put create P. Yeah, you fit in it great. Okay. Would you say it was different? You know, the feeling of being in good health and having energy is so neat when you've been Ill, after you've been ill. And I don't know if that would go with physical pleasure and sunshine. Yeah, we health. could put health. Put health. How about like discovering? Go that with knowledge. Could you put that with knowledge and creativity, I think, would okay. go with that. Well, that's a good list, actually. Anybody got something dramatically different, or? It seems like there might be a love of love itself. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, a love of love itself. Nobody Let's put that up top. Love. Yeah. Nobody said money yet. Oh, nobody said good. No, very good. Let's put money here with food. There you go. Oh, one more thing I can think of. How about power? Mm. Oh, that goes right next to love. <laughs> Could be. I'd put it down. I would put it under, I would put it next to creativity, yeah. knowledge, power. Yeah, that does. I would like uh, peace, you know, peace of mind or peace. Mm. Peace, good. Let's put that up next to love. One's country. Country, okay, let's see. That would go, how about uh, art, music, literature, country? No, 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 no. That goes down with myself. This part I direct. <laughs> these are not, you're going to see why we're doing this in this order later. And these are not hard and fast. They're snap judgments here. We might actually analyze and we move them around. But I assume you mean that patriotic feeling when the trumpets play and the flag goes up, not so much the physical landscape or whatever. So it's more abstract. Okay, let's start with this list and, and um, if we have to add more, we can always ma- add more later. Now, these are all things that you love or some of the things that some of you love and taken together, all the things that all of you love, have said you love. So what is it in the emotion of love, or whatever love is, if it's not necessarily an emotion, but what is it in the love that is related to each of these things? When we say we love all these things, what, do, what does it have in common? Attachment. An attachment. Okay. Uh, it could be an attachment. Let's put it, let's put over here, attachment. Let me ask you back. Supposing it's something that you've just experienced. Is, is there something before attachment? There's attraction. Attraction. That's actually what I was driving at. Thank you. Attraction. Let's put attraction there. Or desire, actually. Let's attraction, desire. 
Yeah. I would like uh, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Let's put that up here. I think of some kind of open heart or just a, it's a, I don't know a word for it. But Feel good. Uh, feeling of um, expansive feeling or something? Or Receptiveness? Yeah. But that, that would be open. I'll put openness. Why don't you just put openness in the usual words? So, let's start with desire and attraction. That's usually the first sign of love, isn't it? Attachment to something is usually formed afterwards, and uh, satisfaction isn't necessarily something we get from love. We can have a lot of dissatisfaction from love. Openness certainly can come from this, but also, if it doesn't go well, it can create the opposite. So, what is the effect when we first encounter something and arouses this love in us, what does it make us do? Reach for it. Pay attention and reach for it. Reach for it, right? We want to possess it. It captures our attention. Let's put this down over here. Attention. And rouses us to action. Can we say that? Action. action. Just put action. That's good. Now, just to be complete here, what happens if we encounter some object and we're indifferent to it, just neutral? Nothing. <laughs> well, but we ignore it. It's the opposite of paying attention. Ignore it, right? Or we just don't notice no. it at all. Well, that's, that's yes. Ignore it. We don't notice it. It certainly doesn't rouse us to any action. It doesn't really have any effect. That's the effect. I mean, it doesn't make us do anything, right? Okay, we don't have to run anything about that. But I just wanted to get a, the full range here. Now, is there a difference between love as desire, desiring this object, and love as possessing the object? Yes. What's the difference? Between desiring an object and possessing yeah. it. Yeah. It's actually a, a matter of thought. Because we can desire it and imagine we possess it, or we can desire it and uh, just uh, go after it physically. So it's a matter of thought. Well, let's take a concrete example. I mean, you're not wrong here, but we're talking okay, about... Let's go back to my high school days when I loved hot fudge sundaes. Okay. And I knew they brought pimples on. Right. And and some days, it, the, the, my blood sugar would be so low, this is me analyzing uh -huh. it now, that... It didn't matter how many pimples it brought. I just had to have that hot fudge sundae. And when the actual taste came, it wasn't anywhere near this desire. What you'd imagine. But did it give you some satisfaction? Yes, it gave me a lot of satisfaction. When we desire something like a hot fudge sundae, it's a different feeling than when we've actually gotten it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even though we still say we love. Would you like a hot fudge sundae? Oh, I would love one. Means yes, let's go out and get one. And when we're e when you're eating it, you're saying, oh, I just love these hot fudge sundaes. Love is covering two things here. One is a desire and the other is a satisfaction, a kind of satisfaction, correct? Right. How about, um, oh, nature. Somebody mentioned nature. Who mentioned nature? I did. Okay. So, you in general love nature and that makes you desire to get out there whenever you can, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happens when you're actually in nature? How do you feel? 
Yeah, it doesn't change in the same way that Therese just described with that this Sunday. I, I feel like I'm in awe. Ah, okay. Let's put awe up here. You're not in awe now. No. So something did change. You still love nature, right? Yeah. Well, now you'd but say... I mean, like, I'll be in my house. And right. I'll be, and I'll have to do things in my house, and I'll think, well, I want to get out there in the woods. Okay, that's the desire. Uh -huh. And what I'm driving at here is if we look at it closely, it's a different feeling than when you're actually in the woods, and now there's no more desire to get to the woods. You're already there, right? So now what happens, it turns into awe, right? So uh, you see what I'm driving at here? Desire turns into satisfaction or it turns into awe. What else? I would like losing the self. Would that be like with the awe? Like you don't think you're just kind of part of it. Okay, how would you? How, yes, how like would you describe that feeling? Hmm? Like in nature. You say, when I do geology, for example, I... I find a place, I try to study it, but there is a point where I lose myself. Good. So let's see, would openness maybe not quite do it, but it's somewhere in the direction of openness. How about um, joy? How about joy? Do you feel a lot of joy in that? Right, yeah. Okay, joy. Let's put joy up here. Very good. I think of times when I've gone to see Ama, and wanting to see her, there's a lot of excitement uh -huh. and energy and anticipation. And then seeing her, her, being with her, is the awe, the joy, the bliss, the... Bliss. The Let's put bliss of, up here. That's a good example. There's a loss of self-sense, too, that Abdullah was talking about. Yeah. Right. Okay, now, does love always manifest as an emotion, a feeling? How about when we you say, oh, I love my family? Does that mean you're always going around aware that you're loving your family? No. Mm -hmm. It's different from indifference, isn't it? That's why I mentioned neutrality or indifference. It's not like you're indifferent, but it's not necessarily a manifest feeling in the body or mind, right? You know, the, the thing that's bothering me about what you just said is you, you said, does love always manifest as a feeling, was what you said. Right. And that question itself is so subject to interpretation because... If you say manifest, you usually mean, is it in evidence right this moment? Right. And many times we have, uh, if we put our attention on a certain memory or thought, quote, thought object, then we will arouse feelings in us, and then we'll call that, the fact that we have that kind of connection, we'll call it love. But we don't always walk around with the thought, I love my family, going Right. Or, or even a hot fudge sundae. Until I ask you, do you like hot fudge sundae? You say, oh, I love hot fudge sundae. <laughs> well, what is the difference between indifference and, let's say, just being at home, being with the family? No problems going on with the family. Nothing's arising to bring your attention to the situation. Can we call that? Peace, a kind of peace with the situation, or a contentment with the situation? Contentment, let's put contentment up here. It also seems like we carry around some assumptions that uh, are not necessarily manifest, but lead to an openness in a situation. If we were with a bunch of strangers in a public place, we might feel 
a little bit constricted when we're with our family, even though we're not thinking about it, there's just unconscious assumptions at play that lead to a sense of relaxation and openness. Right. And again, at ease would be a good one here. To be at ease with your family, but not at ease with, the, with the strangers. But I, I'm trying to stick now to the emotional side of this, or the feeling side, or rather than why these things happen. You see what I mean? So whatever our assumptions are, our thoughts about it, they certainly do affect how we feel. But I'm just trying to get to the naked description, as close as we can get to the description of how we actually are experiencing just at that level. So everybody see you're, what I'm driving what at? What you're trying to do is you're trying to get the, to the common feelings that we, that we experience when the, we say we love these various... Exactly, topics. exactly right. Very good. Thank you. Okay, so what is contentment itself? In other words, does it arouse us to any particular action? Like a potential for action. In what circumstances? Oh, just with the family. There's a sense of contentment, but also there's this potential for action at any moment if, if uh, it's called for as far as... To maintain that? Yeah, to maintain, to express the love for the family in whatever way seems uh, appropriate in any given moment. So that's part of openness here, I think, maybe, right? You know, like sense of belonging. Sense of belonging, okay. Uh, contentment, ease, let's say belongingness, or just belonging is good enough. That's um, the opposite of alienation. It's close to what Mike was talking about. With strangers, you feel kind of restricted. With family, you feel more open, more relaxed. Right? Is there anything here that love is intrinsic in, that we, without prior knowledge or experience, that love is an intrinsic part of anything on the right? Well, we've put love up here, so, <laughs> but we haven't gotten to defining that. But you tell me, is love intrinsic in any of these things? I don't know. I think we have to experience that or make decisions and then choose to love. Well, let's go and explore this a little farther. That's a very good question we're going to get to in a minute about choosing love. But let's um, point out, we have now three phases of love, if you like. There's the basically desire, attraction, right? And that rouses us to action. And then we can experience things like awe and bliss and joy, right? Openness. And that usually is when our desires first fulfilled. A good example is with a spouse. You meet somebody, you fall in love with them, there's desire, right? And then uh, you start going out with them, you start a relationship, an affair, and there's a lot of joy and bliss and, and highs and whatnot. And then you marry them, and you have a family, and it settles more into the basic, uh, fundamental, underlying emotion is ease, peace, contentment, belonging. That doesn't mean you still can't have joy and bliss arising, but the quality of our love changes here. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. And this ease, peace, and contentment is kind of subtle, but it is still different than indifference. That's important because sometimes feeling of contentment and peace can seem like indifference on the surface. Okay, so we have this movement, and we could start to describe love uh, this way. Love as desire moves into love as 
joy, awe, bliss, any of these sorts of things, moves into satisfaction, contentment, openness, belonging. Assuming things don't interfere here, right? Rumi describes this relationship between love as desire and love as contentment, the beginning and the end here, as seek water constantly, O man of dry lips, for your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find a fountain. The lips dryness is a message from the water. If you keep on moving about, without doubt, you'll find me. You see what he's talking about here? When we desire, love as desire, means that there is possible some peace, some contentment, some satisfaction, actually some end to the desire. And he's saying your very desire is proof that there is satisfaction at the end of this movement. So we have really here love as a movement with a beginning and an end. This is what we've described, a beginning in, in desire and an end in contentment, right? Is this, I mean, if anybody is not following this or, or, or doesn't think this is accurate, they speak up. This is a dialogue. Okay. Then let's just talk about one other relationship here. What's the relationship of love and hate? Well, it's on the other side of indifference. <laughs> yes, it's not indifference. Very good. No, that's true. What is hate? Why do we hate? What do we hate? We hate things that we're fearful of. Afraid of? That we know. Wait, let's, let's stop for a second. Afraid of why? Um, fear of pain, of loss, pain of... Because we love ourselves. So we're afraid that ourselves is going to be injured. There's an object, that's what I'm getting at, okay. right? Or our family's going to be injured. Ah, okay, our family. So somebody is threatening our family, that can arouse hate in us, right? Our country. Or our country, certainly. Anything we identify with, it seems to generate that fear. So anything we love, if something starts to come between us and what we love, that can arouse hate, right? But there's something interesting about this. If there isn't love in the first place, there can't be any hate, right? If we're indifferent towards some object, we don't love it, we're totally indifferent to it, and someone comes between us and the object, was that going to arouse any hatred in us? Right? Interesting, isn't it? Can love turn into hate? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes? What? Well, give me an well, example. I've been surprised uh, to comment something the other day. How can, look at the, the divorce rate in this country, how so many of them, I'm sure, had many aspects of this kind of love when they began. Tremendous passion and commitment, and I've been so surprised at how that can turn from such a high committed feeling to such an angry, spiteful, negative. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. The higher the peak, the lower the trough, maybe. I mean, why does love turn into hate? I mean, you don't have to give me a total philosophical answer, but some concrete examples. In your life, has love ever turned into hate? Well, maybe it wasn't love to begin with, and maybe it, uh, something resulted in total disappointment. Disappointment, right? Disappointment. Okay. So if we love something, and we go after it, and it disappoints us, then we can end up hating it, can't we? How about the other thing that is the change, that the natural change 
the process go through if there is not an awareness like we have the the joy and all that then eventually it moves into like belonging and then the change in the process itself mm-hmm. can also bring this disappointment well if it's interrupted isn't it let's look at this if we take the basic process like rumi says the basic fundamental curve is love is desire moves to acquiring what you desire and that becomes love is let's say joy or bliss and then that moves to keeping what you have and that becomes ease contentment peace right now as long as that curve is not interrupted hatred never arises disappointment never arises these things don't arise but at any point in that if it's interrupted uh then the the love starts to disappear it's no longer love it becomes something else you see what I'm ta- driving at mm-hmm. you know, i think what abdullah said that i've felt sometimes that you have this joy and you become attached to joy <coughs> so when it be, starts to move into contentment mm-hmm. you're dissatisfied with that because yeah. you don't see oh, that as okay i i'm sorry yes so, in other words, what you're saying is sometimes you stop, you want just to repeat the joy over and over, or the bliss over and over. Yeah, I guess one is not aware of the process itself. Right, okay. And I think this is particularly common in, in Western culture because we have this Hollywood image of love. And in Hollywood, love is supposed to end with just joy and bliss. They ride off into the sunset, you know. And there's no recognition that there's another stage to the process of love so yes i think you can you can get um attached to that you can even get attached to the desire part you can desire something and in your imagination the excitement and the thrill is in your imagination when you actually get it uh you know it's not nearly as great as it was just thinking about so in that sense yes you can along the process you can become attached to one stage of it and just want to repeat that stage without going through all of it but what we're describing here is sort of a a natural progression if other things don't interfere or trying to see if that is true let's put it that way okay so we've we found that love that, that hate can't arise without love but love can arise without hate so there's an asymmetry here right this tells us something about at least love and hate love is primary love is more uh fundamental we might even look at it the way the uh, buddhists look at it is hate is really an afflicted form of love it's like the same energy but it's now been perverted and we, and we don't have to go into a whole analysis of why that happens but the love is really the primary energy. Do you see what I'm driving at? This is by the way why the Buddha said animosity does not eradicate animosity. Only by loving kindness is animosity dissolved. This law is ancient and eternal. And this is not just something he snatched out of, you know, the air and sounds good. It comes from a real deep understanding of how love and hate works. because love is fundamental so hatred is secondary hatred can never get rid of hatred hatred just f- fuels hatred 
But if you can reconvert that energy back to love, then you can get rid of hatred. Now let's ask this very interesting question. Can you will yourself to love something? Can you choose to love, as Mike uh, brought up? Yes. Yes. Okay, give us an example. What have you chosen to love? It's been a process for me. I would have, in, in my younger days, thought of love as a feeling. And if I didn't have a feeling, I would think that I didn't love something. Mm -hmm. But as I've matured in life, it, it's an, to me it's a, a knowledge. Like I can think of my mom and I know that I love my mom. Even though there's been good times and bad times, it's just this knowledge, this knowing. Okay, but I ask again, is it something you choose or, or is it something you learn? There's a difference here. I think you can cultivate it. Cultivate it, but can well. Let's start, let's go to some absolutely concrete examples. For instance, romantic love. Can you choose to fall romantically in love with somebody? No. No. Can you? Did you choose to love hot fudge Sundays? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? What? You? <laughs> no. It could do I said it. we were quite sure of that one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I in a way I did. Uh, you know, if I, as I look back on it, and what I've done is like I've chosen to love meditation, and I do that by giving it a lot of attention and a lot of time and just sinking with it. And then whenever I want to change any of my habits, that's what I do. I look in there. So I, I suspect that when I did love Hot Fudge Sundays, it was because of the environment of being with a whole group of kids after school and we just chit-chatting and talking and, and just that feeling of belongingness. And so... That's why I probably loved Hot Fudge Sundays at the time. But I think there is a choosing involved in it. Um, can you choose to love broccoli? Now, there's a difference between choosing to eat broccoli and choosing to love it. There's a big difference here. But you can come to love things that you, through cultivation. Yes, I... I uh, like, I would say I love sushi now. I'm ah, very good example. Food, let's stick with food here for a moment. But did you choose to love sushi, or is it something you learned to love? Both. Uh, that's yeah. what. Go ahead. I had the same. I'm getting back to you. Yeah. <laughs> Salads, the same sort of thing. I used to when I was much younger. Veggie salad, stay away. Now all of a sudden, I in this discussion, I'm realizing I love salad now. Now what was that process? I had to be open enough to try it and give it room, and then the cultivation comes in too, but you're not going to, if I didn't give it a chance, I never would have loved it. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, but notice what you said. If I didn't give it a chance, I never would have loved it. I'm asking, are you choosing to have the feeling of love, or are you choosing to expose yourself to something and to experience something, which perhaps... And to cultivate appreciating... What, what the things are in it that are appreciable so that they can grab you. So that they can grab you. But look how your language is expressing this idea that love comes on its own. You, you might choose to put yourself in the circumstances so that it can manifest. I would agree with that because the, yeah. the, I didn't, you know, like all of a sudden say, okay, I love meditation, boom. It came on its own after I cultivated the practice. So the, so the let's let's keep said, going with this because the most it's important. you could do is choose to be open to love. 
is what I'm hearing. Yes. Well, I, I'm asking you. I mean, we're sticking now with love as this feeling. Now, at any range of this, a feeling of desire for or a feeling of uh, joy or a feeling of contentment. Can we choose any of those things? Do we choose our emotions is sort of a broader question. Yeah. And there's a linguist that I've heard speak, and he spoke about that. Um, it, you know, the question of it, and what he said is the giving the attention, the notice, repetitively will lead us to love. Whatever it is, whatever you choose, just giving it repetitive attention will do it. And that would fit with what I know. And that, that would be what we call learning or cultivating. Yeah. Right? And we certainly can do that. I mean, this is all our experience of growing up and maturing. You know, we, uh, there are a lot of things that we just growing up, we don't know anything about. So we don't have any opportunity to love them. And if we start learning about them, we can come to love them, to come to appreciate them. So this is important, by the way, and just for the reason Therese mentioned, in our spiritual practices. In a spiritual path, there's always this... Um, instruction to love, to be compassionate, and so forth. And it can often be a problem because we say, well, I can't choose to be compassionate. I can't choose this. And what we can choose is to engage in an activity or a practice or something. In the same way we would choose to experiment with sushi. We will never learn to love unless we do that. Now, that's very important, and, and you have to do it before you love. But love itself, in my experience, and I think most people's experience, is really a force that moves through our lives. It's not something that we choose. So, uh, let's try to summarize where we're at so far. Can we say this? And if you object, please say so. Love is a force which moves us through desire to action, which climaxes in feelings of joy, bliss, awe, but which in a certain sense, and I'm going to use a kind of a anthropomorphic word here, intends peace, contentment, satisfaction. You're saying the force love intends? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that this force moves from uh, desire to satisfaction, contentment, peace. Again, assuming it's not interrupted by anything. And that this would be true irrespective of what the object is we love. Whether it was hot fudge Sundays. Sushi, whatever, family, uh, nature, art, knowledge. I mean, is that... Makes sense. Seem right? Yeah. Would that make it like an inheritance in us? Like as much as, uh, let's say, fear or jealousy or... I mean, is, is it something like primal... Well, what do you mean by jealousy? Because there are several ways you can be uh, jealous. I, I think jealousy, to me, yeah. in my understanding, is uh, a discrepancy between what we see ourselves and see in others. And this discrepancy could 
lead us to jealousy in order because it aroused a negative feeling in ourselves towards ourselves. Okay, good. Now, so I'm saying it still has to have an object. Let's say you are jealous of a powerful person, right? Right. You have to have a love of power to be jealous of that. But within that, maybe seeing the power in the person would arouse feeling of uh, weakness. Yes, but there has to be the love of the power to begin with. For instance, um, I have almost no interest in basketball. I am not the least bit jealous or could be jealous of a basketball player. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, uh, there was a time when I was young when I was interested in rock and roll and I thought maybe I could be a rock and roll musician, as astonishing as that sounds to those of you who know my musical <laughs> talents. But in those days you didn't need much talent in rock and roll. Uh, and then there could be a little jealousy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In fact, I remember actually what, I've forgotten the group. There was some group in the late 50s. These were when rock and roll was first starting, and they were teenagers my age. And they were up there on the stage making a lot of money with the girls all screaming for them. I was a little jealous. It's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to be a rock and roll star. It wasn't the love of the music. It was the <laughs> love of the girls screaming. And <laughs> but you see what I'm talking about? Again, so to get back to your question, you've answered your own question. I mean, is love inherent and is it primal? If these other emotions depend on having love first, and love is something that comes into our lives uh, that we don't choose, we, we can choose to expose ourselves to things and maybe then learn to love them. Sometimes we can't even choose that. And I think the strongest example is romantic love. Sometimes you fall in love and you didn't intend to fall in love. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know, you're going to college and you're studying real hard and you're trying to get your degree and suddenly you fall in love with someone and it drives you crazy. You can't get them out of your mind. You can't stop thinking about them. You stop doing your work. You just assume not be in love, right? Yes. And that's a good example where actually love comes unbidden. So love is primal in that sense. A force that moves through our lives and from desire to then to joy, then to peace, to just use the shorthand here. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the object is. Now, let's step back for a minute and review what the mystics say about this situation. The problem is, all these objects, at least from here on down, are impermanent, and therefore, when we love impermanent objects, we are bound at somewhere along the line to experience disappointment. We might experience disappointment at the desire stage, because we, we love someone and they don't return our love, so then we have disappointment. We might experience disappointment at the joy and bliss stage. Somebody mentioned this. You might get attached to just this sort of thrill of the joy and the bliss, and that will wear off with any of these objects, and then you'll have to go look for another object to give it to you, right? 
And then uh, even if you reach the peace and contentment stage, let's say with family or friends or even with nature, uh, that's impermanent. Your family and friends are going to grow old and they're going to start to die. And ultimately, if the peace and contentment is depending on your family and friends, you are going to then experience suffering. Even nature is a good example. When we went up to Cloud Mountain two or three times ago, Cloud Mountain is this retreat center on a hillside nestled in a beautiful forest. And about uh, two years ago, he went up there, and guess what happened to the forest? Clear-cut. Impermanent. So all these things are impermanent, ultimately. Then the question of mystics always ask is, well, is there a somewhat that is not impermanent? That if we love that, we would not experience any suffering. And of course, mystics always answer, yes, God, Brahman, Allah, the great Tao, consciousness itself, whatever word you want to use, right? Now, the trouble is, normally, under normal conditions, we cannot find that, we cannot discover that, unless... We desire it. We love it. Unless we start at the beginning of this circle. If we're indifferent, we won't be moved to action. If we hate it, maybe something in our background, you know, we had a bad experience with fundamentalists, we'll run the other way. So we need, as a motivating factor, love in its initial stage. but you can't will yourself to love. So what can we do about this? Supposing you don't have much desire, much love in the sense of desire in a spiritual path, beginning. Well, mystics say something else. And here's the way Ananda Moyamai puts it. In the whole universe, in all states of being, in all forms is he. All names are his names, all shapes his shapes. All qualities, his qualities, and all modes of existence are truly his. So she's saying that all this is really truly God. Therefore, Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, writes, No one is loved but God, but the name of the created thing acts as a veil. In the same way, he who worships a created thing here worships none but God, though he does not know it. So what is this telling us? It's giving a big clue here. You may not love God. You may have no idea of God, or God doesn't mean anything to you. God isn't an object out here to you. You can't love God. Maybe God's just something very abstract or whatever. Or maybe you're much more of a Janani, and so you're thinking in terms of enlightenment. It's hard to love enlightenment. But what Ibn Arabi is saying is, if you love anything, any object whatsoever, hot fudge Sundays, you're loving God already. You just don't know it. You see, everybody follow that? <laughs> the name of the thing acts as a veil. This is, of course, in mysticism, in all forms of mysticism, there's a kind of a delusion. Reality is veiled from us. And what he's saying is the specifics of this is the name pillow 
makes us believe that this is a pillow and not God. So that name uh, is acting as a veil. So the question is, how can we pierce through the veil and start to see that what we already love is God? How can we use that existing love we have to arrive at the love of God? Which is goes hand in hand with knowing God. We're never going to love any God unless we know God, something of God. Okay, now we are going to continue with Socrates' method, which is to examine what we already love and ask, what is it about this object that makes us love it? What qualities does this object express, so to speak, right? So let's, uh, let's try this a little bit here. I don't know if we're going to have to do any more rewriting, but let's start with um, hot fudge sundaes. And and if you have some favorite food, it doesn't have to be hot fudge sundaes. What? Who has a, a, another favorite food? You like sushi, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody have cheese? Cheese, all cheeses? Just about. Okay. Chocolate. Mm-hmm. Chocolate. What? Hummus. What? Hummus. 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 <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't given it a chance. <laughs> what is it about? Yeah, you want to say something? Yeah. Oh. What is it about a specific food you love? I know, I guess like there is some satisfaction, I guess. Well, let's say with food in general, there is the the deeper sense that the body is being fed and everything's going to be all right. So it, it, this sort of comes back to love of myself. If you wanted to try to take out the quality of the specific food. Uh, you know, it's interesting you brought this up because I, uh, some, some, I, I see also memory in it. Memory? Aha! I was going to say... Um, I like matzo, and most people look at matzo as just dry cracker. Right. <laughs> and I was raised with it, so I like it. And is that true of you, the hummus, that it has... Yeah, there is some satisfaction, I guess. If you had especially a happy, contented, safe kind of childhood, the memories of the food you ate... Uh, harken back to that, don't they? It's a message from contentment through food that yes, you can have contentment, that feeling that you once had that maybe you don't have as uh, innocently anyway now is possible. Do you see what I'm driving at here? It seems, it seems like talking about food anyway that there's a couple of different levels. There's the level you speak of of just the, the fact of it being food and nourishing, you know, that very, very basic satisfaction. And then with other things like hot fudge sundaes and other uh, foods that we particularly love, there's just a pure sensory pleasure that's just perfect in itself. And that's very different, it seems, from that survival uh, satisfaction. There's, there's just a... Good, okay. But what I'm, I'm not trying to say that they're all the same. I'm trying to say if, 
If you examine what it is about each one, you'll come out with a quality that you want. For instance, satisfaction. If you go out and have a, a good, tasty, veggie meal over rice, right? There's a sense of contentment, satisfaction at the physical level, isn't there? This is what we're trying to abstract out here. Is it really the food, or is it you're after the sense of contentment and satisfaction? Well, I, I think yeah. it gets down to satisfaction versus pleasure, because I think pleasure is a different uh, motivating thing than, than, than physical need. Uh-huh. Okay, but so you want pleasure as well, right? I mean, that could be another reason to eat food. But then pleasure, what I'm trying to get is the quality of pleasure. It's pleasure that you like in it. So, uh, hot fudge sundaes has a, a sense of physical pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. What else has a sense of physical pleasure like that that's similar? Sex. Sex, good one. Sex, right? Anything, sunshine and, and the warmth in your body, right? Isn't that mm -hmm. similar? Mm -hmm. So, it's really... What I'm driving at, it's not so much the hot fudge sundae, it's not the sex, it's not the sunshine, it's something more abstract, not intellectually abstract, but something more abstract. You want pleasure. What about, what about some other things then? That's what looks interesting here. How about like a place? Place. Yeah, I, I'll tell you my story. Good. I came to this country, I was like almost 18, <clears throat> from Turkey State to learn English. And it was so great. I mean, every day was new. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning to go. Uh -huh. And I remember going through those streets. I mean, everything was new. The, you know, the air, everything is different. Right. And just that feeling of it was just, I didn't know what it was. But there was this great feeling of it. Then I went maybe after two years, and I walked the same street. It wasn't there. I wanted to get back. So I, I went, I walked the same street, I did the same thing, nothing came. You know? I went, like, years later, and the interesting thing was I didn't have enough sleep. But it was similar to the atmosphere. It was about this time of the year. And... The amazing thing, I walk and the whole thing came back, even the smell of the air. Which street was this? You know, like I was living around the Fillmore, a place called Fillmore Inn by Fred Meyer. Here? In Corvallis. Yeah. In Corvallis. Oh, Corvallis. Yeah. Okay. This is wonderful. Put newness up here. You came from Saudi Arabia. Right to Corvallis, right. and had this marvelous feeling of a whole new place, exotic. And right. yeah. Jennifer is dying to go to Saudi Arabia. Do you know why? She wants the exact same thing. <laughs> she wants the exact same thing. You come to Corvallis to get it, and she's going to go to Saudi Arabia to get it. This is what I mean. It's not in Corvallis. It's not in Saudi Arabia. But these are expressions of this sense that everything's new, everything's fresh, right? Yeah. Okay? This is a wonderful example of what I'm driving at. What you're really after is not dependent on any of these objects. It's not dependent on Corvallis. It's not dependent on Saudi Arabia. It's not dependent on Hot Fudge Sunday. It's, you really want something more. You don't know it, but you want something more, what you're looking for here, Okay? What are, what are uh, other things here? 
Who mentioned uh, music? I did. Who? I did. Okay, music. Mm -hmm. Music is what? One piece of music? Do you like a lot of music? Yeah, a lot of different music. Yeah. So is there something about all these different pieces of music that you love about music? Yeah, there's certainly a, a rhythmic content that that is there, you know, that that makes my body move in a fashion that seems to be coordinated with the music. Passages of music that that seem expressive in some fashion, mm -hmm. they cause, you know, emotional emotional effects. What kind of effects? Awe, maybe? Yeah. Bliss? Awe, uh, bliss. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this is interesting, this business of the body moving in a coordinated fashion. Could you describe that as harmony? Well, sure. I can describe okay. it as rhythmic harmony. Okay, there's that's other, fine. There's other uses of the word harmony. Yeah, I don't mean just yeah. harmonic melody. I meant like harmony, like everything's sort of fitting oh. together and there's a sense of everything in a more philosophical sense, right? Yeah, let's put let's put bliss and harmony on here. Now, is there anybody else that different totally different objects will do this for? How about you mentioned knowledge and getting into studying something? Let me give you an example and see if you relate to this. I was just reading a book by um Feynman, the the American physicist. And he describes, actually, he had no interest in painting, but he wanted to learn painting because he wanted to express a feeling he had that science gave him that he couldn't express any other way. And he actually went and took lessons and became a painter so he could paint this feeling. And he describes a feeling of awe. Mm -hmm. A feeling of awe at how beautifully the world fits together when you study it through science which is what I mean partly by harmony, right? Mathematicians would say they love mathematics and for this reason, for the sense of harmony, of how everything fits. And in fact, a lot of scientists and mathematicians are also music lovers. There's a, there's a recognized very close relation here. But again, this is what I'm driving at. Music, when you first think about it, seems like the farthest thing away from mathematics. And yet, what is it that people love about music? It's the same thing they love about mathematics. This sense of harmony, this sense of everything fitting together. Nothing's out of place. You see what we're doing here? We're examining the things, objects that we love and trying to abstract out those qualities and then see that those qualities manifest in other places in the universe that it's not really dependent on the specific phenomena that arise, that what we really respond to are these qualities. Now, and we've just given some names up here, sweetness, newness, bliss, harmony. These are all names of God. You read through the, the mystics about the sweetness of God. They write about this all the time, this incredible sweetness. The newness, the new heaven and the new earth. Lali Shori writes about how she washed her mind with the soap of sadhana, of a mantra, and everything was made new for her, this freshness, right? Harmony, the harmony of, uh, of uh, the cosmos expresses this divine name of God, so to speak, this quality of God. God is what? Uh, Satchit Ananda, bliss, right? So, uh, 
look what happens when you start to examine what you already love and start to pay attention not to the object, but to the quality, the kind of state that's being expressed in that and your relationship to it, what it's doing, and you start to discover God through these divine names, so to speak, these qualities. Is everybody following that? It's actually a practice you can do. We've just touched on it here. It's a, pra- it's a very good practice to do in meditation so that you can actually feel these things. That's where this practice becomes uh, this marriage of Janana and Bhakti, of uh, devotion and love, but also using the intelligence. Now, notice when we wrote this out, I asked Nurja to put these on different levels. You'll see, just very roughly, gross physical objects, food, hot fudge, sundaes, and this I put down here, family, pets, teachers, friends, are more expressive of these qualities. They're more abstract. Uh, nature is starting to get really abstract. What do we mean when we say we love nature? We mean a whole bunch of things. We love the beauty. We love the harmony. You know, we're not talking necessarily about one specific spot. You might have one favorite spot you like to go to out in the Three Sisters wilderness. But when you talk about you love nature, if you're really a nature lover, you love the desert, you love the seashore, you love the mountains, any place that's wild and there's... um less of the uh, imprint of humanity. Uh, And then knowledge, creativity, art, music, those things are very abstract in that sense. They they have a lot of these qualities all compressed into them. So if you start to ask, what do you love about music or what do you love about dance or something, you're, you're going to find richer and richer expressions of these divine qualities. Here's how Socrates described what we've just been doing, a little sample of. He says, the right way to approach the things of love is this, beginning from beautiful things to mount for that beauty's sake ever upwards as by a flight of steps from one to two and from two to all beautiful bodies and from beautiful bodies to beautiful pursuits and practices and from practices to beautiful learnings so that from learning he may come at last to that perfect learning, which is the learning solely of that beauty itself, and may know at last that which is perfection of beauty. And this is exactly what we've started to do here. By not dismissing what you already love, even hot fudge Sundays, even the what you consider maybe mundane, non-spiritual things. That love is, as Ibn Arabi says, the love of God. You just don't know it. So look into that. See what it is about that that you actually love. And then you mount this ladder and you find that it's a quality. And this quality is, oh, expressed in other things. And the tension starts to shift focus from the specific object to the quality. And you will begin to see the quality manifesting in places you never saw before. Here's how Ibn Arabi describes this view of the cosmos as being the unfoldment of certain basic qualities, which are 
usually in most traditions uh, covered under designations like truth, wisdom, harmony, beauty. These are all names of God. He says, the divine names that are attributed to the real have various levels in attribution. Some of them depend on others. Some of them supervise others. And some have a more inclusive connection to the cosmos and more effects within it than others. The whole cosmos is the loci of the manifestation for these divine names. This whole cosmos, all our experience, is a manifestation of God. And if you, uh, if you trace back the qualities in the most outward forms of this manifestation, physical things, you find that there's a hierarchy. This is why he says some of these names govern others, and some have a closer c- connection to the whole cosmos. Beauty is something that is spread throughout the cosmos, all the way from the physical to the most subtle, right? The specific taste of a hot fudge sundae is only in the hot fudge sundae. But it is an expression of a quality that is ultimately divine. By the way, those of you who are reading uh, the Trunkpa's book, The Five Buddha Families, you find the exact same thing expressed quite differently, but the exact same idea in Tibetan Buddhism. These five qualities that are symbolized by the five Buddha families are these fundamental qualities of Buddha mind. And then everything in the cosmos is an expression of one of these qualities and then various combinations of these qualities. And so this is the practice of uh, meditating on these uh, one of these Buddha families, one or the other of them, is to make you aware of these qualities manifesting in the cosmos. So in this sense, this cosmos is a ladder. It's a ladder that you could think of, if we want to think of it spatially, was let down, (laughs) descended, and a ladder which we can reascend. And in this process, then, to try to fully answer Abdullah's question, or original question, from a mystic's point of view, we can say love is a force that comes from God, not us, that leads us back to God if we allow it. It's a guide. And insofar as it designates this movement back to God, or movement of reaching down and drawing us back, it's a verb. Insofar it designates the end of this whole curve, contentment, peace, and so forth, it's a noun. Insofar as love itself is a divine name, and somebody mentioned this early, Mike did, loving love. We put it really at the top here. It transcends both. It's neither a verb nor a noun and cannot be expressed beyond saying that. So that was my little experiment this morning to try to uh, ferret out love. Any questions or comments? The tape ran out at this point. That concludes this talk.